Oh, good morning, everyone. <coughs> it's really good to uh, be with you again. Uh, my name is Mike Simpson. I'm one of the uh, leadership uh, team here at uh, Bayview. And uh, I must say that it's sometimes um, not a good idea to go out for coffee with Steve. Uh, I went out with him a few weeks ago, and I, he was telling me about this sermon series that he thought would be a good idea about talking about Jesus the human. And I said, oh, I've got a really good idea that you could use. <coughs> he said, uh, hmm, perhaps you could preach the sermon. So here I am. Uh, this is the third in our uh, sermon series entitled Jesus the Human. Now, our first sermon that we heard was a masterly exposition by, of Luke chapter 15 by Mark Connor. Do you remember that one? He was the former minister at City Life Church in Melbourne, and he was on the staff there for 32 years, one of the largest churches in Melbourne. What a great preacher. Last week, Steve, our senior pastor here at Bayview, inspired us with the account of Father Damien's life, challenging us to see Jesus standing before us in all of his humility in all of his humanity, saying, we humans need God. What an amazing sermon that was. I'd really encourage you, if you weren't here or if you haven't heard it, get on the website, look at the podcast, hear the words of Steve. Next week, the series will be concluded by Andrew Menzies. Now, he's the principal and senior lecturer in ministry studies at Stirling Theological College. The letters after his name go on and on and on and on. I'm sure his sermon will be absolutely sublime. But today, <laughs> you have me, little old me. Now, I wonder... Hands up, who has ever been to London in the UK? Wow, look at all those air miles. You've been to London. Well, if you've ever been to London, I wonder if you visited Trafalgar Square. And you visited Trafalgar Square and you've seen the monument to Admiral Nelson. Now, you might not uh, remember it all that well because when you're in London, there are so many squares full of monuments to dead people. It's kind of hard to keep track, isn't it? <laughs> Trafalgar Square, of course, is special for a couple of reasons. First, it is right in the centre of the city. And people tend to think of it as the heart of London, which means if you want to protest or celebrate or show something off, Trafalgar is the place to do it. And it's not just full of statues and fountains, it's full of really big statues and fountains. In the middle of the square, surrounded by four lions, standing proud upon a giant pillar, is Admiral Nelson, who died at sea during the Battle of Trafalgar. Very good. The Admiral and his lions 
are in turn surrounded by four shorter columns called plinths, three of which support the long, dead heroes of old. Now, you've probably never heard of or you've even not understood those fearsome heroes of old astride their great war horses. But the fourth plinth, which you see on the screen, was always empty. Empty for 158 years. It was meant to be for King George IV, but they just couldn't raise the money. Until 1995, when the Royal Society of Arts was given permission to come up with a suitable subject or object to balance out the square. Now, initially, there were many suggestions offered up, everything from Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to Winnie the Pooh. But ultimately, it was decided to use the fourth plinth to display a rotating cast of contemporary sculptures. Now, since that time, the plinth has been occupied by, among other things, the skeleton of a horse, a giant blue rooster, a human head inside a book being squeezed under the roots of a tree, an upended mirror image of the plinth itself, and a replica of Nelson's ship, the HMS Victory, placed cleverly inside a glass bottle. But perhaps the most confounding piece ever displayed was the very first statue. It was called Ecce Homo, which all you Latin scholars will know means behold the man. And it was a life-size sculpture of Jesus by the artist Mac, sorry, Mark Wallinger, placed on the fourth plinth in July 1999. Now, here are two images on the screen. They were taken probably in the middle of summer on the one day that the sun shined. Mark Wallinger said of his scripture of Jesus that it was not meant to be perverse or tongue-in-cheek, he says, I wanted to show him as an ordinary human being. Jesus was at the very least a political leader of an oppressed people. And I think he has a place here in front of all these oversized imperial symbols. Behold, the man, you may remember, is what Pilate said to the crowds when he presented Jesus to them after his trial. John chapter 19. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. That's from the King James Version. The message, Eugene Peterson expresses it this way. Just then Jesus came out wearing the crown and the purple robe. And Pilate announced, here he is. The man. Jesus stripped and beaten a crown of thorns upon his head. 
This statue was indeed stripped down to nothing but a loincloth, a thin crown of golden thorns, the only splash of colour on his alabaster body. Now, if you've been to Europe, you know that there is no shortage of sculptures, sketches, crucifixes, rude screens, mosaics, or paintings of Jesus. Jesus preaching, Jesus healing, Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, but this one, this one was different. This one made people stop and stare. And stop and stare because... You see, nothing else in Trafalgar Square is rendered on a human scale. Nelson himself is over five metres tall on a column that rises over 50 metres into the air. The lions, the men on horses, the plinths themselves are huge. So huge that this life-size sculpture of Jesus looked alarmingly out of place almost like a child who had climbed up onto something dangerously high in the middle of a public square. Jesus, up on that column, looked so small and vulnerable, so humble, so human, that people couldn't help but stop and wonder up at him. And believe it or not, the predominantly secular public in Britain absolutely loved it. One reporter referred to the piece as magnetic. He said, in a way, it was the reverse of the grand gesture. He wrote this, Jesus, Son of God, is the grand gesture to many. But Wallinger's Jesus was life-size, Dwarfed by the plinth, standing on its precipice, small and humble, God reduced to human form, head bowed before the people, hands lashed behind his back, biblically awaiting judgment from the masses. There was something heartening and ordinary in this figure. Its generosity was in its ramifications. Another wrote, what Wallinger has done is to turn Trafalgar Square into a meditation on the transience of earthly things, making all other statues in the square look hopelessly pompous. That's Mark there with his statue. Strangely enough, it was the Christians within Britain who were a little more unsure seeing their Messiah lifted up in such a public way, so small, so naked, so vulnerable, so tiny, as to appear almost inconsequential. And many of the faithful found that the statue made them intensely uncomfortable. As one man commented, you couldn't put your faith in someone like that. He's as weak as a kitten. In fact, Jesus looked so fragile up there that a writer for one of the UK's leading Christian magazines 
wondered if the sculpture's air of vulnerability didn't, as he said, send out all the wrong signals. But the artist defended his decision. I consciously, see, made him life-size, said Wallingham. We are made in God's image, he said. Jesus was made in our image. So to stand in contrast to the overgrown relics of empire was definitely part of the plan. Would Jesus have approved of the plan? In John 12, we read this. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed the sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he was setting himself up in contrast to the empire, the Roman Empire. His actions that day were calculated to show just how overgrown and pompous and ultimately self-destructive the workings of empires always are. You see, if it had been Pilate, Pilate would have arrived astride a war horse. He would have entered Jerusalem surrounded by centurions, their armour gleaming, their weapons glistening. And he would have expected people to let out a cheer for Caesar, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, as he called himself, as he passed. Let us cheer, or else. What he would not have expected, that no one could have expected, was that a Jewish man from Nazareth would come riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Not with an army, but with 12 unarmed disciples. And that people, the common people, would celebrate Jesus instead. Celebrate this man as he openly mocked Pilate and his overlord. And not only celebrate him, but cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna, which means, anyone know? Anyone know? It means, save us. Save us. Do you remember Jesus Christ, superstar? 
Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Hey, JC, JC, won't you smile at me? Santa, Hosanna, hey, superstar. Are you going to sing it with me? See, it has a whole new idea when you know that Hosanna means save us. You think you can sing it with me? Try and keep up, okay? <laughs> Two, three, four. Hosanna, hey, Santa, 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 Hosanna, hey, Santa, Hosanna. Hey, JC, JC, won't you smile at me? Santa, Hosanna, hey, superstar. Very good. Well done. <laughs> now, you see, I always thought Hosanna meant something like, you know, hallelujah. But no, it means save us. The son of David has come. He has saved us from guilt and fear and hopelessness. Salvation. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Son. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna on the lips of the people would have been heard as a provocation. As a cry for liberation. And even worse, as a complete dismissal of the emperor who had already proclaimed himself the saviour of the world. Save us, they shouted, not to Caesar, but to Jesus. Not to the son of Julius, but to the son of David. O God, in the highest heaven, save us, they sang. And good old Pilate must have been thinking, who is this? along with everyone else in Jerusalem when he heard what Jesus had done. Who is this? And how could a man like that ever save people like you? Now that's the question. That's the question. How can a man so meek and so mild and so gentle and unassuming and so peaceable and forgiving ever save people like us? How could a man who in the words of Isaiah 53 ever gather enough people to make a difference? Listen to Eugene Peterson's wonderful version of Isaiah 53, the servant's song. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. 
But it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we got healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've ever done wrong on him, on him. How can this man portrayed in Isaiah ever convince us to follow in his footsteps? How could a man like that ever save people like us? You see, God didn't send us a hero. God sent us a saviour. Someone with courage to do things differently. Someone to expose the lie that lay at the heart of the Roman Empire's peace and prosperity. The rot that lies at the heart of all empires. Even ours. The lie that prosperity for some necessities necessitates the suffering of others. The falsehood that security for us can only come at the expense of them. The lie that violence is the only path to peace. The false promise that power can save you. riding into Jerusalem so small, so vulnerable, willing to live and, if need be, to die for the sake of the kingdom. So very, very different. Jesus spoke truth to those lies. He spoke the truth that salvation, security, peace and prosperity are not what we gain when we finally have the power to crush those who hate us, to exploit those who are weaker than us. Peace and prosperity will only come when we finally make the courageous decision to just stop hating and hurting and oppressing one another. Jesus, in an effort to save us, not from some overly righteous God or overseeing devil, from ourselves, from the world we have made, chose to walk the way of self-sacrifice rather than self-protection. He came to show us that there's another way to live. Rather than wield his power over others and force them to submit to his will, Jesus poured out his power for the sake of others. He let it spill from him freely, as freely at his, as he let his love and forgiveness flow out over all those who did him harm. Like a kitten on a plinth, like a lamb to the slaughter, Jesus walked straight into the centre of Jerusalem and laid his neck bare. He called the powers and principalities of this world out into the open and he let them do their worst in the name of keeping the peace. But as he did so, he also exposed the leaders of empire 
for what they truly were. Tyrants and bullies and men so insecure that their hold on power that they would murder a gentle innocent in as cruel and violent a fashion as possible just to keep themselves safe. High upon the cross, his body broken, his arms and legs nailed down, he exposed the empire's peace for the bankrupt sham it had always been and will always be. A peace that is never satisfied. A peace that can never be secured. A peace that will always require more blood because the cycle of vengeance has no end. Now, they wouldn't have seen this, of course, at least not at first. Pilate would have thought the whole affair is over and done with. And once they nailed the little dissident from Nazareth to the tree. What Pilate didn't see coming, what no one did, was the fact that Jesus' story was far from over. Friday may have been a good day for the empire, but Friday was not the end of the story. They may have crucified the man but they could not contain his message. There on the cross, even as they tried their best to nail him down, his gospel secret broke free. The secret that a new kingdom has drawn near. And we don't have to live this way another day longer. Jesus came to show us a new way, didn't he? The way out of Caesar's empire into God's kingdom. A kingdom where humility and compassion reign. A kingdom of people liberated from violence and united as a family in love. A kingdom eternally sustainable because in God's kingdom no one is oppressed or exploited, murdered or marginalised. A kingdom that truly is good news for all. This, my friends, is how a man like that can save a people like us. That is how a man like that can save you. That is how a man like that saved me.